Hello and welcome to the History Nerds podcast. We are the History Nerds and we are second year students at the University of York. We are each pursuing different degrees and have different academic interests, but ultimately... We are the History Nerds, a group of students passionate about history and who want to share our knowledge of different historical periods to a wider audience, especially areas and resources outside of traditional historical academia. We love sharing that passion with others. Our purpose is to inspire the next generation of history nerds to pursue their passions for history in whatever way they choose. Each episode of our podcast focuses on a different period and topic from history, some of which you may have already encountered in the classroom, yet we seek to go beyond the school specification to show the past as diverse as the present. We hope you enjoy listening to the podcast. I'm Neve. I'm James. And what will we be discussing this episode, James? In this episode, we'll be uh, going to be taking a look at the development of cinema in Germany and the Soviet Union during the interwar years. The early history of cinema in these two countries is closely intertwined with the rise of Nazism and communism during this period. We'll be exploring this subject through the lives of two noteworthy directors from the time, uh, Fritz Lang and Lev Kuleshov. During this episode, we'll be trying to get it to the bottom of how have historical events and processes shaped the film industry? Should we consider propaganda art? How important is freedom of expression for artistic freedom and artistic quality? And can entertainment be political? We begin in Germany in the 1920s. So the beginning of the German Expressionist movement. This was a the artistic movement emphasized art, theatre, and more was film. The German Expressionist film movement it was a film movement that had highlighted the scene of the film and used it to create a natural environment that are more at home with people's inside people's heads. And the main person that we're going to talk about in relation to German Expressionism is Fritz Lang. To give you a little bit of background on Fritz, he fought in the Austrian army in World War I and was wounded four times. He was discharged from combat in the spring of 1918 because he was suffering from a nervous condition, which is more than likely what we'd call today post-traumatic stress disorder. Like many veterans of World War I, Lang rarely spoke about his experiences in the conflict. And there's actually not a lot of... Sort of period films from this time that talk about World War One, although who the, the suggestion has been that a lot of the troubled minds of the protagonists of the German Expressionist film movement are actually representative of people's experiences in the war, and that they were approaching it in sort of a non-representational war. After the war, Lang moved, moved from Vienna to Berlin. And you really can't understand the history of cinema in Germany in the 1920s without understanding the broader context of the Weimar Republic during this period. So following the end of the First World War and the abdication of the Kaiser, Germany was left in a state of political turmoil. Gun battles, assassinations, riots, massacres and civil unrest were commonplace as far-right and far-left groups battled for control, which denied Germany the foundations to build a stable democratic order. In Berlin, in the aftermath of the war, German capital was considered so unsafe that during this period in 1919, 
the German parliament was forced to meet in a small town of Weimar instead, christening the name of the new German uh, democracy, the Weimar Republic. The Weimar Republic did not remain so unstable for the rest of its life. In fact, from 1923, the Weimar Republic settled down to a new period of economic and social stability, as extremist violence debated and the economy began to recover. Ironically, it was during this period of great stability that the German film industry began to suffer, because before, in the period of turmoil, a weak currency had largely insulated the Weimar cinema from foreign competition and artistic influences in the years following World War I. Now the German film industry, however, struggles to compete with uh, Hollywood and imported films from America. So it's around this time that Fritz Lang directs one of his more iconic films, Metropolis. Metropolis Hopolis depicts it's a dystopian futuristic city where the working class are oppressed and literally underground whilst the higher-ups are, are in a more utopian state. Metropolis is now considered one of the greatest films of all time because of its sci-fi elements, its strong themes of allegory and its, and its place in German expressionist cinema. However, it was a bit of a critical failure and most importantly, a financial failure. Science fiction films, even today, are not cheap and it was actually responsible for the bankruptcy of one of the biggest studios in Germany at the time, which is the UFA. And that's just not just the biggest studio of Germany at the time. I believe today it is also still one of the biggest studios. Um, so many consider this to be one of the golden ages of the German film industry. And it was the largest film industry in Europe uh, and could produce such classics uh, such as Metropolis or The Cabinet of Dr Caligari, which today are, are often held up as, as examples of brilliant uh, filmmaking. But now we move on to a, another country that experienced a, a golden age in film during this period, and that was actually uh, Soviet Russia in the 1920s. And again, that we cannot understand the developments in film uh, in Soviet Russia without, without understanding the broader political and social context of the period. So in 19, October 1917, uh, the Bolsheviks took power following a, a revolution. Following the revolution, however, the territories of the former Russian Empire quickly descended into civil war with a number of factions vying for control, pitting the Red Army against the, the anti-Bolshevik coalition known as the White Army. The Russian film industry, however, suffered greatly during the harsh social and economic conditions of the Civil War, but many film studios followed the retreating right armies and took everything movable with them, including raw film and cameras. This, this left the Soviet uh, film industry in quite a state by 1921. After the, the Civil War had ended, the Bolsheviks, needed to very quickly rebuild Russia. Uh, economic ground zero it had reached after um, the consequence of the First World War and Civil War. As a temporary measure to rebuild the economy, Lenin introduced a new economic policy, or NEP for short, to Russia in 1921, uh, which introduced a degree of market systems and private enterprise back into Russia. Um, Films attracted a lot of attention from contemporaries not just in Russia, but internationally. And even today, the work, the work of these directors is studied for their contribution to the film industry and to film theory. There's a lot of questions about what made these artists so daring and innovative. 
And a lot of it comes down to a lot of them started remarkably young, many in their 20s and some even in their late teens. And I'm just going to talk briefly now about the Kuleshov effect and Lev Kuleshov himself. So the Kuleshov effect is one of the main tenets of film editing. It posits that one, two shots together have more meaning than one shot apart. And this means that you can take a blank reaction shot of someone and intercut that between with many other things and it will generate different meanings. So you could have a man staring blankly and you cut that in between the man, something else, and then back to the man. And it will create meaning depending on what that something else is. And Kuleshov began his career in the film industry as a teen. He directed his first film in 1917 when he was just 17. He was filming the Russian Civil War as part of a documentary crew and then progressed onto the National Film School in 1919. But what does it mean for film to be revolutionary? Well, I'm glad you asked that, Neve. Um, revolutionary cinema, in the most meaningful sense, refers to films which were subverse the values of the society in which they created. Many of the films produced in the Soviet era depicted revolutionary events. So these films depicted uh, socialist revolutions. Many of them did, in fact. It's estimated around 10%, at least 10% of the films produced in the Soviet golden age depicted revolutionary uh, scenarios. However, if we go by the definition that revolutionary cinema uh, is refers to films which were subversive to the values of society that they created, the films of the golden age were hardly revolutionary at all. With few exceptions, these films were created in order to serve the interests of the Soviet state. Moreover, many of the young directors, uh, including Vertov, Eisenstein, Fedovkin, were radicals and enthusiastic to communicate the values of the fledgling Soviet state. Therefore, a unique, a unique relationship formed between artists and the regime during the Golden Age. The regime provided the myths they wanted to tell, and the artists provided the, the experimental iconography. And this shows the very strange relationship between propaganda and art that developed during this period. It's worth, again, emphasising the stark limits of artistic freedom that this the totalitarian state uh, of the Soviet Union imposed uh, on on culture and film. For example, Kuleshov was heavily attacked for his apoliticism after writing and directing arguably his greatest film of his career called By the Law in 1926. The attacks on Kuleshov would be a harbinger of things to come, as we shall see that increasing repression and censorship would bring an abrupt end to Soviet golden age of film. So now we switch to the rise of the Nazis in the 1930s and the impact that had on the development of cinema in Germany. So towards the end of the 1920s, um, we see the gradual collapse of the Weimar Republic. Following the Wall Street crash in the USA in 1929, the Weimar economy uh, itself collapsed as it was very dependent on foreign loans from the United States to sustain its growth. And this resulted in mass unemployment, with nearly a third um, of German's workforce being out of work uh, at the height of the Great Depression in 1932. 
Extremist parties, such as the Nazis and the communists, were able to capitalise on this crisis and build up a mass base of support by offering an alternative to the Weimar Republic. Under the weight of the economic and social and political instability um, at the, the late Weimar period, the fragile foundations of the Weimar Republic crumbled, which culminated in the appointment of Adolf Hitler as Chancellor of Germany in January 1933. As a minority party, the Nazis understood the importance of, of propaganda for consolidating control over Germany. Uh, it must be noted that in the last three elections the Nazis held, they, they fell far short of majority, uh, gaining just 33% of the vote in the November 1932 elections. So this shows the challenge the Nazis had in consolidating the regime, because they had to convince the other two thirds of the population, who ostensibly opposed the new regime, to not just become uh, passively accept the new regime, but become active participants. Joseph Goebbels, uh, who had masterminded the party's activities in Berlin, was appointed the new Minister for, Pub for Public Enlightenment and Propaganda in March 1933. And so under the Third Reich, Germany's cultural power was made into a weapon of propaganda. Hitler had a fundamentally political understanding of the arts, and he saw its end as little more than a celebration of power and as an instrument of propaganda. However, normal cultural life was not entirely extinguished under the Nazis. Goebbels saw the value of having dance halls, music and films as an escape from the struggles of everyday life, especially in a totalitarian regime. So artists and writers were forced to adapt to the new natural socialist regime, uh, doing so with varying levels of the compliance. Some uh, were totally silent, some made minimal compromises to work, uh, but others uh, fled the country altogether and uh, started continued their work uh, in France, uh, Britain or the USA. One, um, one of those artists was, as we discussed before, Fritz Lang, um, who emigrated from Germany um, because of political disagreements with the Nazi state. After this, Lang made repeated trips from Germany to France in 1933 before finally emigrating to Paris and later moving to Hollywood, where he founded the Anti-Nazi League for American Democracy in Hollywood and continued to uh, be a huge uh, cultural critic um, of, the, of the Nazis well into the Second World War. So what were the Nazis' plans for German film then? Well, Goebbels gave a speech to the film industry in 1933 where he laid out what the new right expected of the German film industry. Goebbels said that art is free and art should remain free, but it must get used to certain norms. However, to what extent was art really free uh, in, under the Third Reich? Well, art, art was actually in, uh, incredibly limited as the Nazis, swiftly after taking power, um, consolidated the control and hold on the German film industry. First, in July 1933, the Reich Film Chamber was created and it became compulsory for all those active in German cinema productions during the Reich Film Chamber, which meant that the German state could control who was active and producing films in Germany. And of course, uh, all those of non-Aryan stock, which essentially, if you were Jewish, you were not allowed to join the Reich Film Chamber. So already the Germans were re-rodling the film industry based on their uh, ideas of racial hierarchy. We can see the Nazi domination of the film industry and how it performed internationally. So the industry entered an even, even more um, stringent period of isolation. The most infamous film produced under the Third Reich uh, was Triumph for the Will, directed by Lenny Riefenstahl. Riefenstahl set out to film a documentary like no other, utilising a crew of 120 and 30 cameras, which deployed recent techniques, including wide-angle lenses and telephoto lenses, to achieve a mesmerising effect. 
The film includes speeches by the Nazi elite, including Adolf Hitler, Deputy Führer Rudolf Hess, and Nazi Geleiter Julius Streicher, uh, interspersed with footage of mass SA and SS troops reacting and marching in columns. The film is striking for its scale and monumentalism, presenting a vast disciplined mass of Nazi troops moving in coordination, as if they were one body. Uh, However, Triumph for the Will um, was a massively reality-bending documentary, and whether it can be even described as a documentary is, is, a, is a core source of serious debate. So what's important to remember is that regardless of whether things are propaganda or not, documentaries are always, always there here with a sense of bias. The director is always going to present the, the events in the way that they want you to see them. That's just how film works in terms of presenting a narrative. So Rufenstahl's defence in her later years of saying that it was just history kind of falls apart in the fact that it was history that she manipulated, especially since it's a lot of the film was deliberately manipulated to give you a sense of the Nazis' force and power, which isn't necessarily something that they had. Or, in fact, this film is quite dangerous in the fact that um, it has become one of our cultural touchstones in how we view the Nazis. And that's an image that the Nazis themselves created. So some contemporaries today would even say that this film, Triumph of the Will, they would consider it a great work of art or... At least some have even considered it one of the top 100 films of the 20th century. And where do we draw the line between art uh, and propaganda, especially in this case? I think in this case, it's very clear cut that it's propaganda and not art. I think you should be very sceptical and be a little bit cautious around people that see this as a triumph of filmmaking, because it isn't. It was simply that because as governments have so much money behind them, they could allow they were allowed to to produce a film that has a gargantuan budget and with that the effects of being able to you know, there's aerial shots, there's massive group hoop shots. All of these things were already incorporated into cinema. However, this film just displays a lot of them and therefore it seems impressive when it is a dangerous work of propaganda. And on that note, it is worth noting that Triumph of the Will was not a typical Nazi propaganda film. As already mentioned, Goebbels, Joseph Goebbels, the Minister for Propaganda and Enlightenment, preferred indirect propaganda for, for a feature film length. And ironically, he actually opposed the commissioning of Triumph of the Will and it was Hitler who went above his head uh, to commission the film. Goebbels believed that propaganda was most effective when it was indirect. The secret of propaganda, he said, was to permeate the person it aims to grasp without his even noticing that he's even being permeated. Goebbels did not see straightforward propaganda films, like Triumph of the Will, as appropriate uh, in a period especially when the Nazis were weak and just consolidating their rule. Although, interestingly, this film was released commercially and with its 
if its critical acclaim in the Venice Film Festival seems to be presenting itself with an air of respectability. What's interesting about the Venice Film Festival is that throughout throughout the 1930s and into the 1940s, is when there was a lot of sort of unrest in Europe due to the World War. The Venice Film Festival became increasingly fascist in how it selected its films. And that actually led to the creation of the Cannes Film Festival in direct opposition. Thank you for that interesting piece of film history. However, just because a film did not contain an overtly political message does not mean these films were in fact apolitical. Uh, Goebbels realised that entertainment was an essential part of propaganda organisation. Moreover, uh, many of these films contained implicit Nazi propaganda messaging. Although Goebbels wished to create a Nazi film industry, which he said should be free, it was obvious that under the strict conditions uh, imposed by the Nazi uh, regime in the cultural sphere, that this was never going to happen and never going to be a reality. So essentially, the situation in the German Reich can be best characterised by a cultural dictatorship imposed from above. Russia experienced a cultural revolution during this period, which saw artistic expression in cinema tightly curtailed. This new revolution culture was entailed to Stalin's uh, broader uh, economic and social revolution from above, and it meant a break from the past, but more specifically, a break with the culturally pluralist years of the 1920s. All the arts were called on by the state to create a Stalin's new society, and this certainly included cinema. So Soviet politicians were actually very frustrated with the cinema of the 1920s. Uh, for them, it did not live up to their expectations, despite the uh, brilliant experimental work uh, of, of the directors of the golden era. They were, they were annoyed that some directors produced stories that were apolitical and did not maintain the socialist realist message. However, they were angry at the golden age directors, uh, Eisenstein, Dozenko, Podovkin, Vertov, who were ideologically motivated, but their films they produced were of a style that was too experimental and they believed it alienated audiences and was not accessible um, to the, uh, the millions of, of, um, of Russian uh, lower classes. However, the, repudi- the reputation, reputation of this film experimentation was actually very bad for popular cinema because choice for audiences suddenly became drastically limited. In fact, as artistic freedom was curtailed, the quality of films went down and uh, the quantity of films even went down. The number of films produced dropped from 148 in 1928 to just 35 in 1933. And none of these artists was denounced more or attacked as bitterly as Kulishov. Kulishov's name came to stand for everything that critics hated. So we've seen some really, really clear parallels between these two eras and how they link to to the questions that we had at the top of the podcast. podcast. So that was how have historical events and processes shaped the film industry? And we've really shown in that we've, that the film industry has been shaped by historical events, both quite explicitly in how all changes of power has affected how the organisation of film industries in these two eras and countries was, you know, who, there's no way that German expressionism could have been allowed to flourish if the currency in Weimar Germany was so weak. In 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 the Soviet Union, there's no way that often uh, the montage era 
of the Golden Age. So the work of Eisenstein would have been commissioned uh, under a sort of a capitalist system. It was the unique relationship formed between the regime, which needed political education and propaganda, and the artists who were willing to sacrifice some of the political messaging of their work uh, to produce, to experiment and innovate uh, in the art form. And implicitly, uh, his cinema was also shaped by historical processes. And we've also seen how artistic expression is often at odds with an authoritarian and totalitarian regimes. And this is just due to the nature of how how art and artists are often individualistic and will, will try to get messages that messages out that perhaps authoritarian and totalitarian regimes don't want. And you can see this with the fact that a lot of, of German expressionist filmmakers fled when they saw that um, the Nazis were coming into prominence in Germany. And we can also see that in the increasing frustration that Kuleshov of experience and how that sort of drove him out of the film industry. Absolutely. And I think the example of Kuleshov is uh, especially sad, given he, was, he started off so young. Uh, but yet his talents remained unused for the rest of his life. And in fact, we saw how the uh, the early artistic, uh, the relative cultural plurality, the artistic expression of the Soviet golden era was merely a, sort of a blip in the longer history of uh, Soviet film, which is more characterised by increasing repression and censorship. We, we've also discussed how propaganda um, was used by these regimes. And we've raised some really interesting questions about to what extent can propaganda be art? We've seen in the Soviet golden era uh, from 1925 and 1929, a lot of the art being produced, such as Sergei Sergei Eisenstein's Bashit Potemkin, was uh, very much to the core Soviet propaganda. We have to see, uh, look at the broader context of the propaganda being produced. And in fact, as Neve discussed, we should take issue with people who try and claim films such as Triumph of the Will were uh, a step forwards in filmmaking. Yeah, James, we really need to look at how harmful these pieces of propaganda are and whether that harm can be weighed up against what artistic merit we may get from re-watching these films. And lastly, we've looked at how seemingly apolitical films can be used uh, used to serve a political purpose. Of course, and that was best shown by the way that film was used under Nazi Germany, directed by Minister for Propaganda and Public Enlightenment, Joseph Goebbels. Uh, Goebbels realised that to keep people coming to the cinema and to keep feeding them propaganda, at first he still needs to create entertainment, so people would be lured into a sense of false security or, as Goebbels said, caught with their trousers down and then exposed to um, this Nazi propaganda. It was, uh, as we discussed, a cultural dictatorship opposed from above, uh, which is absolutely at odds with the essence of art, which is a very much about individualistic ex- uh, works of expression. Mm-hmm. 
So thank you for listening to this episode of the History Nerds podcast. If you'd like to learn more, please check out the additional materials available on the History Nerds website, the link to which will be in the supplementary documents form and podcast description. These supplemental materials have been designed to supplement each podcast and help you explore these topics further. We really hope that you've enjoyed listening to this podcast and feel inspired to pursue your own passion for history. So have fun studying history, both within and beyond the classroom. 